the form of the storm is going to take. I just pray there's not so much water in the lower level of the buildings, you know, so we don't have to redo it downstairs again. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for today. Um, thank you for those who, who came this morning. I pray, Lord, that we'd be able to look at your word and receive a blessing from it, re- receive understanding from it. But I pray ultimately, Lord, every time we hear the word, read the word, meditate upon the word, I pray, Lord, that we would gain a greater understanding of you, that we may come to worship you more intimately and serve you uh, with greater dedication and, Lord, uh, ultimately love you from the bottom of our heart. I just pray, Lord, that you would lead us there and that as we do so, we would be more effective servants uh, to serve you in your kingdom while we're here on this earth. And I pray, Lord, this in Christ's name. Amen. So Ephesians chapter chapter 2, and look at verse 20 through 22. I'm going to specifically look at verse 20, but it says, Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Now, in my study of Scripture, and in my reading, I have came across a great analogy as to how people argue today about the many roads that lead to heaven. And they reason that, this is how they reason, truth is like a great mountain. There's one summit, but there are many ways of going up to it. So they, they question, why should Christians say that they alone are right while all other religions are wrong? You've heard that, haven't you? That's, that's classic. And they try to declare, or they declare often, it does not matter which way you climb up the mountain as long as you get to the top. Uh, but this same analogy, I, I think, could be looked at in a different way. It could, it could show how pluralistic people's thinking really is concerning the broad road and the only means of measuring whether if, a, if they are right or wrong is their own mind. Their mind becomes the authority. And they conclude that we believe the same God. We just have different ways of getting to the same place. This is the way people reason. This, is, this may have been your reasoning before you came to become a believer. Um, but the problem here is that they, they have no blueprints. They have no measuring device to show them if they are indeed in error. And as far as they are concerned, they're building as well as everyone else. Well, it was Jesus who warned of this kind of reasoning, even in Matthew chapter 7. And you should turn there. Matthew 7, verse 26 and 27. Scripture informs us that this is really foolish reasoning. And why is it foolish? It's called foolish because it is possible for a person, it is possible for a person's foundation to to be built upon a a faulty foundation of uh, inaccurate calculations and uh, faulty information. And Jesus says this in Matthew 7, 26, everyone, 7 verse 26, who hears these words of mine, and does not act upon them, will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, which we'll experience tomorrow, and slammed against the house, and it fell, and great was its fall. In verse 28, when Jesus had finished these words, 
The crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Now, Jesus calls a person who has that kind of foundation a fool. Because it's gonna, when the storms come and the storms of life come, they're going to topple right over. And I want you to see that when we follow the careful, when we follow actually carefully and observe the God-given plans and specifications given in the Word of God, we will have a sound structure because we first start out with a sound foundation. So our structure will be sound if we listen to and act upon the words of our Lord then our foundation surely will be strong. Right there in Matthew, look at verse 24 and 25 of Matthew 7, because you'll see what I mean. Jesus again says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock, and the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against the house, and yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. And so that is really significant, that what you believe and what your foundation is will determine when the waves and the winds and the storms come, will you be standing, especially the storm of death and the storm of judgment. Will you be standing? Where will you be? Will you be upon a foundation that is immovable, that's solid, and that you have been actually part of the superstructure that will not crumble when those things happen? See, that brings me to our text in Ephesians, especially the things that I've been saying before, these most important truths that there can be no true building without a right foundation. In, and so far, we have considered the negatives and the positives in our text do actually show the blessings that have come to our changed status in this new communities, where he says in Ephesians 2.19, so then you are, and he lists some negatives, you're no longer foreigners, you're no longer resident aliens. You're no longer homeless. Uh, in fact, you are part of a family. You are the household of God. Uh, and that you are a holy temple. Where it says in verse 21, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord. And of course, the holy temple uh, is used here in a way where it's talking about the habitation of God. The place where God decides to dwell through his spirit and he decides to dwell in believers and then he gathers those believers into a congregation and he calls that the church those who have been called out of something to something else and so the gathering of believers becomes the place where god dwells with his in his by his holy spirit so the church is presently being built. It says here also that it is a growing building. Uh, it is a growing. It's, it's not static at all. It's moving. It's growing. It's alive. It's vital. And that's what the church is all about. The reason why is because God's there. And God is the living God. And so the church is, is presently in process of being built. And at this very moment, this has been something that's been going on not only now, but for a long, long time, that God is building a building, it is growing, and you are part of that building. If you are a believer, you have been built, built into that building, and the Lord will one day complete it, but for now, the Lord's building is church. And so, th the building is growing into a holy temple with living stones. We're the living stones. And so then the church is the habitation of God, again, when, in which God comes to dwell by His Spirit. Now, there's only one way that we can measure whether we are correct in our belief concerning the soundness of this building. And our text today, quite profoundly, gives us the guidelines for proper measurement and a, and a sound foundation. Look at it again. It says in Ephesians 2.20 specifically, 
having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Now, if you read over this passage too quickly, you might miss the very important message it has for us that this passage really draws a line in the sand between what is true and what is false and how we can measure what is true and what is false. That the proper foundation could be measured by truth. The truth found in the Word of God. Everything that is being built must be built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Now, why are these so important to the unity of a sound structure? Well, here's the first reason. And there are three that I'll give you. Is The first one is simple. It's so clear. It just jumps off the uh, page and right into your face. It's because of the unique character of an apostle. It says, having been built upon the foundation of the apostles. All right? Definite article telling us these are particular individuals. An apostle was a special individual whose qualifications were very specific and very limited. In fact, so limited, people who claim that there are apostles today really cannot claim there are apostles today. There are really no apostles today. Why? The apostles were part of the foundation. The church is being built. The foundation's already laid. So we, we don't have apostles anymore. But nonetheless, the apostles were a very particular group of people that had certain characteristics that no one else had. In fact, if you did not have these connected to you claiming to be an apostle, you could not be an apostle. And so, what is the first thing that we look at concerning the criteria of the person becoming an apostle? Well, here's the first thing. An apostle was one who saw the risen Lord. They saw the risen Lord. They were a witness to the resurrection. That is definitely part of what he is saying here. Now, to, to look at this, we have to look at, I'm going to look at the Apostle Paul, because the Apostle Paul was one who claimed often that he was an apostle born out of due season. Actually, several times the Bible uses that particular term. And for example, in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 8, it says this, At last of all, he's talking about, Paul's talking about himself, as to one of untimely birth, he appeared also to me. Now remember, 1 Corinthians uh, 15 is talking about the resurrection. And so Paul is saying, listen, this Lord, this person who was raised, appeared to me. Now, I was, I was called to be an apostle long before all the, uh, after all the other apostles. I was born of an untimely birth. I was picked as an apostle later on. And so Paul is saying, nonetheless, that for I am the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Nonetheless, the Bible says three times that Paul definitely was an apostle because he witnessed and saw the, resin, uh, the re uh, resurrected, risen Lord. Now, to look at that, look at Acts chapter 9. Right? This is a good example. Paul's a good example to look at because, he, remember, he continued to persecute the church of Jesus Christ. He was going from place to place, dragging people out of their homes, uh, locking them up. Some of them, of course, were being stoned to death. We know that Stephen was stoned to death, that Paul was the guardian of the cloaks of the people who threw, threw the stones, and he, of course, definitely was behind the killing of saints. And so... Here in the Word of God, in Acts chapter 9, we see that Paul is converted to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is apprehended by Jesus in a very unexpected way, and he wasn't looking for Jesus. He wasn't looking to be part of this way, this, this religion, this new religion that was coming about. He, he was against it. Matter of fact, he was 
on his way to Damascus to do more destruction to the church. And on that road, and it, it, the, that road to Damascus is really kind of a, a winding type of broad dirt road that uh, in, in the front is a couple of mountain ranges that come together. It's, a, it's a, like a long, lonely, lonely road to Damascus. And at that place, the Lord humbled uh, this zealous uh, Pharisee named Saul at that time. And if you notice in verse 3 and 4 of Acts chapter 9, it says, And as he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground. All right, something was definitely going. It is noontime. He saw a light brighter than the noonday sun. And of course, he hears a voice in verse number 4. It says, And as he was traveling, it happened that he was, uh, was approaching Damascus. That's verse 3. And suddenly a light from heaven flashed around in verse 4. And he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he says, Who are you, Lord? And he says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and it will be told you what you must do. So, he's an apostle. Why? Because the risen Christ told Saul that the sufferings he caused the primitive church were going to be inflicted upon him. That it really does also indicate the organic union existing between new believers, or, or the believing community and the exalted Lord uh, even though Paul was a persecuting believers, they were, he was actually persecuting Christ himself. And so what's going on here is that God called him by a voice. He heard the voice of the risen Lord. And then in verse number 7 through 11, he was blinded. I'm not going to read that, but he was blinded temporarily. Paul was led to Damascus, and there the, the, the disciple... Ananias and, a Christian, uh, and the Christian community help him through this unsettling event of conversion. And of course, Paul ends up praying, and he, God sends him a man, and he comes and he lays hands on him, and he regains his sight. So see, Paul's confer- conversion was such a revolutionary and lasting event that happened Three times the Bible records his conversion. And so the transformation of this zealous persecutor of Jesus Christ into this chief advocate of the gospel profoundly changed the course of the history of the world. In fact, it changed it so much that Paul became a key writer of most of the New Testament books. And he was transformed irresistibly by Jesus Christ and we went from a persecutor of the church to a chosen instrument now look at chapter 9 of Acts verse 13 for he says but Ananias answered Lord I have heard from many about this man how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem verse 14 and here he has authority from the church the chief priests to bind all who call on your name Verse 15, notice what it says, But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. So he goes from a persecutor to a chosen instrument, from inflicting suffering to being inflicted with suffering. In verse 16 it says, For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. He goes from an enemy to a family member, and of course he is called a brother. Brother Saul, in verse 17, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road which you were coming, has sent me. So the Lord appeared to him. This is one of the criteria of being a real apostle. And so we look in Scripture that this is true of the Apostle Paul. He goes from being void of the Spirit to being filled by the Spirit in verse 17, and being filled with the Holy Spirit, it tells us, from having no identification with Jesus, didn't even want to be part of being identified with Jesus, to being now identified with Jesus in his baptism, where it says in verse 
18 of chapter 9 of Acts, and immediately he fell, they, there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he regained his sight, and he got up and was baptized. Now this is significant because the only ones at that time that were baptized were those who were baptized into Judaism. That if you were a Gentile, want to be connected with Judaism, you had to be baptized into Judaism. Now Paul, being the Jew of Jews, meets Jesus Christ on the road. Everything changes in his, in his thinking, in his direction, on where he's going, on what's going to happen in his future. And what is, he, what is he doing? He is being baptized in the name of Jesus Christ and being identified with the one he didn't want to identify with but wanted to persecute. See, that's the radical conversion that comes to a person. If, if the Apostle Paul can get saved, anybody can get saved. There, there's no one beyond or so deep in sin and against Christ and angrily and zealously against Christ who cannot be saved. It, it's, it's like, you know what, Paul, no matter what you're doing, I'm more powerful than you. I'm God. And so therefore, if I want to come into your life and I want to make you a chosen vessel, that's what I'm going to do. And that's exactly what happens. And then after his conversion, look at verse number 19 of Acts 9. His message changed to become biblically sound. He publicly proclaimed Jesus as the Son of God. Verse 20, and he took food and was strengthened. Verse number 19. So from, for several days he was with the disciples who were at Damascus, and verse 20, and immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogues, saying, he is the Son of God. This must have been a very strange event for those Jews in the synagogue, I tell you that. Here's a guy we sent out to destroy the church, and he's coming back into the synagogue, and he's preaching Christ. This is like unbelievable. I'm sure they wanted to kill him. And then in verse 22, Paul argued, he argued that Jesus is the Christ. Verse 21 says, and all those hearing him continued to be amazed and were saying, is this not the one? Is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on his name and who had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? And verse 22, but Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. Remember, no New Testament. There's not a word of the New Testament written yet. Well, that we, there's nothing out there circulating. And Paul from the Old Testament is proving to them and arguing to the Jews that, wait a minute, you know what? I was all wrong. And God's right. And let me tell you why from the Hebrew Bible. And he begins to convince them of Jesus Christ being the Son of God. And then look, look over to chapter 24 of Acts in verse number 14. Because it says there, it says, but this I admit to you, Acts 24 verse 14, that according to the way, that's what... Uh, Christians were known as at that time the way, all right? According to the way which they call a sect, I do serve the God of our fathers, believing everything that is in accordance with the law and what is written in the prophets. So he is not denying the Hebrew Bible. He is he's affirming it. And he says, you know what? It was there all the time. I didn't see it. Christ was there all the time, and I didn't see it. Verse number 20 or 15 having a, a hope in God, which these men cherish themselves, that there shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. Verse 5, up to verse 5 of verse tw uh, chapter 24. For we have found this man a real pest, and a fellow who stirs up dissension among all the Jews throughout the world, and a real ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. So now Paul... Imagine Paul and his zeal being now a pest to those who did not believe in Christ. To those Jews that were now hearing his powerful preaching and coming to the Lord. 
So Paul is radically changed here. But why is he an apostle? Because he saw the risen Lord. If you did not see the risen Lord, you cannot be an apostle. But here's the second thing, a second unique thing about an apostle. In Acts chapter 26, an apostle was called, commissioned, and sent to preach the gospel of the risen Lord. It says in Acts 26, verse 16, but get up and stand on your feet. For this purpose I have appeared to you, now Paul's giving his testimony, to appoint you a minister and a witness not only to these things which you have seen, but also to the things in which I will appear to you, rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. And then here's his message, verse 18, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith and meat. See, apostle, an apostle had to be commissioned by the Lord and called to preach a certain message. If that wasn't the case, couldn't be an apostle. So number one, anybody today who claims to be an apostle can't be. Not biblically, because they don't even meet the first two criteria. Here's a third one, and it's simply this, that the apostles, because I can't go through all the scripture in Acts that identifies this, they had special gifts and abilities. There's no doubt that their abilities included the working of miracles, plus the casting out of demons, plus the raising of the dead. And these were all considered the works of powers. That's how the Greek term would put it. These are works of power. Right, that God gave them, they were giving these things to authenticate not only their message, but their calling. And of course, these also were given to lay down the foundation for the building of the church, which is the method of truth that there's no way to be saved except through Jesus Christ. The apostles were given abilities and gifts that are no longer operable today in our life. So when the, the Apostle John died, certain, certain gifts died with him. And, um, but they were given those gifts for what reason? To lay the foundation. So the foundation could be laid. So there could be no doubt about this structure, the church that is being built, is sound. And it cannot, be, it cannot fall over, even though the gates of hell may pound against it to destroy it, it will not fall. It cannot fall because the foundation is so sure. Why? It is built upon the apostles. There's a, another unique thing about an apostle. An apostle was given the authority of Christ. When Jesus left in Matthew chapter uh, 28, he says, I give you the authority. I'm going to heaven. I'm leaving you the unfinished work of Christ here on this earth. And so I'm giving you the authority to go preach the gospel and to baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. In fact, this Greek term for this English word, apostle, apostolos, uh, in the first century was used actually for one who had the right to speak for an authority figure. That's how it was used back then. The word means a delegate, an envoy, a messenger. For example, the Caesar in the Roman Empire appointed others to speak for him throughout all parts of the Roman Empire. And the words of the dele these delegates had the same authority as the Caesar. So these delegates were known as apostoloi. Uh, within the Roman Empire. Of course, that's apostles. And so Jesus' apostles, in a similar fashion, represent the authority of Jesus Christ himself. To deny apostolic teaching is to deny the teaching of our Savior. To ignore apostolic teaching is to ignore the teaching of our Savior. So these apostles teach what Christ teaches. In fact, they were inspired by his spirit and for and to be an apostle to be in an apostolic church is to be a church that is faithful to the teaching of scripture. So that is why when you get to the newly formed church in the book of Acts. If you go back, remember Acts chapter 2, 
they were continually devoting themselves. Remember that passage? That famous passage that we use all the time. In other words, they were giving priority to something they never gave priority, priority to before, that they were now joined together after initial conversion and became members of the church. Now, why did they gather? Why did they assemble? Why did they meet? What was the first and primary thing they gathered to do? What is the first and primary thing we gather to do when we meet as a church? Well, the language in Acts 2.42 is clear. They were continually devoting themselves to what? The apostles' teaching. Right? Not any, any old teaching, but apostolic teaching. We have not moved from there since that time. That when I preach or any faithful preacher preaches, they are to preach apostolic doctrine. If they teach other than that, they're teaching a false teaching and therefore not building on a firm foundation anymore. They are part of the foolish group that are building on something that they are creating themselves when the winds come and the waves come uh, and uh, it, it blows upon that particular it's going to fall right over see in the new church and in the church today what do we want we want to learn as much as we could right we want to learn as it says in acts 241 so then those who had received the word now once they received the word they couldn't get enough of the word of god they couldn't get enough of sound doctrine the question is still the same. Do we want what they had? Do we still want it? Do we devote ourselves to apostolic teaching? This is what all Christians want. That the church exists to be the repository of divine truth whereby people can grow through the exposition, the laying out of Scripture to... Uh, of the laying out of the scripture of the truth of, of the apostolic teaching. In fact, once you become a believer, one of the first indicators is this when you know that you have eternal life and you know Christ indwells you by his spirit, that real Christians want to feed on continually the apostles' teaching. Why? Because it's life giving. The word of God is life giving. Here's the very important fact that genuine conversion manifests itself in a person by their newfound desire for the knowledge of the truth. I want the truth! See, one simply cannot be a Christian and have no desire for the knowledge of the truth. It is impossible. It is impossible. Matter of fact, it's one of the things to measure someone by. Why do Christians want this apostolic teaching? Well, because the life of God is in their soul. The Spirit of God indwells them, and they have a new appetite for spiritual things. They have a new appetite for what's in the Word of God. They want to know what God has to say about things. And when they do, they find out they get all their questions answered, and just like uh, Peter wrote in his epistle that this new appetite for spiritual growth is nourishment because we become like newborn babes who long after the milk of the word of God. See, that's the characteristic of a newborn baby, isn't it? They want milk. They, they do not understand why they, they want milk. They just desire it. And if you don't give it to them, they will scream bloody murder until you do. See, do we do that? Do we spring, scream bloody murder if we don't get the word? We should. Our souls should cry out for more. Never be satisfied. Yeah, you get filled up, but you know what? Just like that, you know, you, you can be eating food one night and get filled up and be, feel bloated and said, I'll never, I won't eat tomorrow's breakfast or tomorrow's lunch and get up the next morning and you're hungry. See, it should be the same, that you're always hungering for the word of God, that Newborn babes are, are born with a strong desire for their mother's milk. And if a baby doesn't have that, this desire, well, then we start asking, what's wrong? Is there something wrong with the baby? Doesn't want to eat? Doesn't want the mother's milk? 
the baby won't grow. The baby won't stay alive. The baby won't mature if it doesn't have the baby's mouth. It's exactly the same for a real Christian. Because their new life in Christ, they, they long for. They must listen to the pure milk of the word. They don't want substitutes. They don't want junk food. They don't want fast food. No, they want the apostles' teaching with all its details and with all its intricacies. They want to understand what God has for them. And if they don't get it at first, they will search for it until they find it. And when they find it, they will drink away because it is so wonderful and they're afraid of missing anything. Be sure of this. You are not done with scriptures after you make your initial profession of faith. You must receive confirmation of your profession of faith as to its genuineness. And how do you get that assurance? Well, you get it by being in the scriptures. The scriptures confirm your, the genuineness of your faith. But there's another reason why uh, real Christians feed continually and need more of the apostles' teaching. It's because it's transformative. It's life-giving, but it's transformative. That once you are confident that you are a Christian, you see, you, you, you see some, and you start seeing some spiritual fruit, you are still not done with Scripture. That the Spirit of God also begins to transform your mind. That the Spirit of God's tool for transformation is the very Word of God, is apostolic teaching, and it must correct everything that you're wrong, wrong on. And remember, you're wrong on most things. And all things spiritual. You're wrong on all things spiritual. I was wrong on all things spiritual. Matter of fact, the, the more I read Scripture, the more I realize how true that is. And how so opposed it is to the trends of the world and to the, the desires and passions of the flesh and how Satan, when he comes in with his very skillful lies, how much I was manipulated by those lies before, but now I see through them. Now I begin to see what he's doing and how he's leading you away from Christ. See, we, we get to the place where we must have the Word of God because the Word of God teaches us how to worship. It teaches us how to pray. It teaches us how to witness. It teaches us how to love God and people. It teaches us how to put off sin and put on righteousness. It teaches us how to live righteously in this world so that you will be a faithful servant of Jesus Christ. So see, you never get done with the holy writings. You never get done hearing God speak through his word. Never. You never, you never get done with it. See, that desire is always there. That is why this passage of Scripture is so important. Because you must continually give yourselves over to the reading and to the study and to the hearing and to the meditation of the Apostles' doctrine. That's what you must do. Because this new appetite for spiritual development will bring transformation. Of course, that transformation will be in the renewed mind and also, it will be in the, re the renewed desire to test out everything and find out what the will of God is. See, the mind is the organ of moral thinking and knowing, and when it is renewed, it no longer thinks and understands and judges as it once did. Old things pass away. Behold, all things become new. We'll no longer fit into the world mold anymore. We'll no longer have the joy and desire for the flesh like we did at one time, we will want to increase in our insight into the divine perspective on things, that the whole outlook of the world and of our life and the experience of our life will change because of the Word of God. And why is it that, that Christians don't think as they once did? At least they should not think as they once did. Well, because their minds are being transformed by the word of God, that it's, it, it minds the things of the spirit, which it never did before, and it ceases to mind the flesh, which it always did before. That the transforming of the mind is so that the will of God, or what is willed by God, 
can be apprehended and done, that only a yielded will can desire, discover, and choose God's will. See, is it that, is it like that for you? See, is, is the apostolic teaching that's been handed down to us, do you still have a desire for it? Because there's many things being thrown at the church today to undermine and minimize the teaching of the apostles. Do you know that? There's a movement now, it's called the simple gospel movement. That it's a, it's a movement that really says, okay, we meet together, we preach the gospel, we go home. There's no, lo- there's no an ongoing study of in-depth looking at the Word of God. It, it w- and it was, of course, Paul who told young Timothy in the, in the, in the first uh, birth of the church, when, these, when young Timothy took over the church at Ephesus, he says, but realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. Difficult times in which way? That the truth, the apostles' teaching, is going to be set aside. It's going to be pushed, through, pushed aside. Oh, we're, we're not going to deny it. We're just going to ignore it. We're not going to say we don't believe the Bible is true. We're just not going to preach all the Bible. Because, uh, you know what, the Bible is not really relevant to everything. You know, the, the Bible's really not sufficient for everything. You know, the Bible has is, is got mistakes in it. It's, it's not really inerrant. You know, and this goes on and on, and Satan has his attacks against the Word of God. See, difficult times come. And see, the Scripture is warning us to keep our minds on the Word of God, because it's already happening. We are already in difficult times. And the dangerous times for the Christians living right now, and in the time uh, before the taking out of the church, uh, is because organized religion will be without truth, without God, without apostolic teaching. So, so, so people are left with no standard to guide them, no compass to ensure they are indeed heading to the city of God and to a safe destination. Hence the heart, mind, and will are left to the whim of people's own passions and emotions with no fences. And that's what's going on. And where does it start? Our foundation starts with an apostle and his teaching and his special calling and his special giftedness that has laid it down for us. We're not, we're not laying the foundation. We're building upon the foundation already laid. Now, there's a second thing in our text in Ephesians that I want you to notice because why are these things important for you and I as to the foundation of what are to, to the unity of this sound structure not only because of the character of the apostles but if you notice in Ephesians 2.20 it says having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets because of the unique character of the New Testament prophet talking about New Testament prophets here, a New Testament prophet, like an Old Testament prophet, is someone who receives a direct message from God. Remember, this means they didn't study it, they didn't read it anywhere, they got it from the Lord and spoke it exactly. That's what a New Testament prophet was. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 14.3, Paul says to the Corinthian church, but no one who prophesies speaks to men for edification, exhortation, and consolation. And then in chapter 14 he says, let two or three prophets speak and let the others pass judgment. And if a revelation is made to another who is seated and one, the first one must keep silent for you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all may be exhorted as to what the Lord is directly giving to these prophets to the church. But then it says this, And then let the spirit of the prophets be subject to the prophets. Meaning this, that any time someone spoke claiming to be an apostle, or claiming to be a prophet, a New Testament prophet, claiming to have a direct message from God, they were under checks and balances. In other words, their message was subject to what is already written in the Old Testament. Let's examine what this guy is saying. Let's examine what this person is saying as to if it violates what is already written in the Old Testament. And so, 
these prophets were under strict guidelines from Scripture. That's why in that same context, talking about tongues and the speaking of t- uh, in other languages, that someone who got a message that way too, they had to be interpreted, and of course their, their message had to be clear, and it could not have violated anything that was already written. Any doctrine at all. So there, th- that means this, there is no New Testament prophets today. There, there was there was no New Testament at the time that these people spoke. So God had special people who were given a message, an ability to understand and to speak it. So there can be no more apostles and no more New Testament prophets because they were needed when the foundation of the church was being established. Therefore, we don't need them now. There were gifts given to the church, Ephesians chapter 4, right? along with apostles and prophets, they were given to the church as gifts to lay the foundation. We're not laying the foundation anymore. We don't keep laying the foundation. You've got to build a building sometime. The foundation's laid already, and the apostles laid that foundation, and the New Testament prophets who were getting direct revelation from God, their revelation was being tested, confirmed, and then written. And then once it was written, that's it. It's done. All right, so now that we have the full canon of Scripture, we are now, according to Acts 2.42, to study the apostles' doctrine because what they taught is the foundational truth in which the whole superstructure rests upon. That if we build with other than the apostles' message, we would be believing a teaching that is false, a false a faulty message. But as we have been teaching, there's no other message. There is no other gospel. That's why when Paul rebukes the Galatian church and he says to them, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. He is to be anathema. And so therefore... The Word of God tells us in 1 Corinthians 3.11, for no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So there cannot be many ways. No, Christianity is exclusive. That is offensive in our day. But as Martin Lloyd-Jones says, Christianity is a most intolerable faith. Is that not true? See, we cannot give in. We can't embrace people because they say they they love Jesus and we want to to unify and that's it. You know what we have to unify under? The apostles' teaching. And the apostles' teaching is not limited by just three or four words. It's all of the word of God. We have to agree on all the word of God. So see, the foundation has been been laid and it, it that that foundation is sure uh, we don't have to worry about the foundation it's not going to get it's not going to get any cracks in it it's it's not going to uh, cause the the structure to tumble and there's one of one last thing that this passage tells us and it's it's this it's not only because of the unique character of the apostles and the unique character of the the new testament prophets but it's because of the unique position of jesus christ Look what it says in verse 20. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone. Now some, I don't know if you have a translation that may use capstone or, or something like that, but capstone, cornerstone has to be the translation. Uh, uh, cornerstone is, is what holds everything together. The, the very term means laying at the extreme corner. That's what it means. It means to lay to the extreme corner. And so a a cornerstone was carefully squared off. It was a carefully squared off stone determining the right angle at the base of a building. And the builder could then use it to determine the line of the building or whether the building was level and plumb. 
If a building is not level and plumb, it's in trouble already. So the cornerstone was very key to the structure. If there's no cornerstone, uh, then the foundation that was laid and the cornerstone laid on that foundation could not build the superstructure, could not build the church. So the church could not stand if there was not, there was not that cornerstone. That would be it. It would be desolate. In fact, way back in Isaiah, Isaiah said this, Therefore thus says the Lord, this is chapter 28 of Isaiah, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation firmly placed. He who believes in it will not be disturbed. And then the Psalm 118 passage, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. What was the stone the builders rejected? Christ. Right? They rejected the message of Christ. And so they rejected the cornerstone. If you reject the cornerstone, you reject the whole structure. Do you realize that? You're out. You're not part of the building. You can't be included in the church if you reject it. There, see, that Christianity is so exclusive in this manner that in, again, in, in Mark 12, have you not even read the scripture Jesus said to them? The stone which the builder rejected became the chief cornerstone. See, the words could be translated. The foundation would consist of the apostles and prophets in our scripture that, of course, makes the best sense when it comes to Ephesians 4.11 where it says, and he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastor teachers. That the apostles and prophets were gifted men given to the church as its foundation was being laid. And furthermore, this fits well with the present context, which states that Christ Jesus himself is the chief cornerstone, that he is, he is part of the foundation. That in ancient building practices, the chief cornerstone was carefully placed. It was crucial because the entire building was lined up with it. So that means that the church's foundation, that is the apostles and the prophets, needed to be correctly aligned with Christ and what Christ taught and what the Old Testament taught about Christ, what the Psalms taught, what the, what the law taught, what everything taught about Christ, that all other believers are built from that point on, on that foundation, measuring their lives with Christ. And the scripture we read this morning from from that passage of scripture we use often when we talk about evangelism in Acts chapter 4. When Dwayne read it this morning, let it be known to all of you, to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands here before you in good health. Remember, someone was healed by an apostle. All right, and he stands there before them, and he says this to them. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the cornerstone. And then he says this, and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. He connects the salvation of all people to the cornerstone that lays upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. See, that makes things so exclusive that you cannot claim many ways up a mountain and as long as you get to the summit, we all make it to the same place. If it is not through exclusively Jesus Christ, who is the cornerstone of a building that has been built on the teaching of the apostles, which their teaching came from the Old Testament, then, of course, there can be no vital connection to Christ. There could be no living building. There could be no structure that could stand and no structure will stand but this structure, the church. So the point is that Christ is the vital cornerstone on whom the whole building is constructed. That the foundation and position of the other stones in which the superstructure is built, is determined by him. He is the one from which rests the foundation 
and it is built upwards along the line of each wall. All is built on Christ. All is shaped by Christ. All is determined by Christ, the cornerstone. So that's why Paul can say in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 21, after he says that, in whom the whole building, being fit together, is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. There's the, the continuation of the building of the church that lays upon a sure foundation with its cornerstone, Jesus Christ, and is being skillfully fitted together. Not haphazardly, skillfully being fitted together. And God is bringing his people into his church, and they are being called out of darkness to light, and they are being included in this growing structure. So the structure continually grows. In this age, God dwells in his new temple, which is constructed not from inanimate building materials, but from living believers indwelt by God through the agency of his Holy Spirit. See, so the importance of a sound structure is understood only when it is seen as being built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets with the chief cornerstone being Jesus Christ alone. Only these are the proper measurement for anything that could be taught. See, that's why Christians have to have the apostles' teaching. They cannot live without it. But that becomes the criteria for examining every other thing that's being taught. And that's going to be taught. That's going to spring up next week and next month and next year in these days in which we live. See, we can't be tossed around by every wind of doctrine. He's going to get to, to that in Ephesians 4. But what? To be stable, right? It says in, in uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verse number 13, it says, until we attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ, in verse 14, as a result, we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by the craftiness in deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all respects into him who is the head, even Christ. And then he goes on, and we'll get to that. But see, this becomes key to what he's going to say in the rest of Ephesians. That's so important today. Let us not give up the apostles' teaching. Let us be sure that we are an apostolic church and that we are continuing their teaching, not being in succession with them or as apostles or New Testament prophets, but being building on their foundation. Amen? All right, let's have a word of prayer. Dwayne's going to come forward, and we're going to read our covenant today to those who are going to become, or they are already members, but now we're going to read our covenant together. So, Dwayne, why don't you come? And as we do that, let me have a word of prayer, and then uh, we'll continue. Let's pray. Lord, thank you again for the word of God. Lord, it is... Every day, Lord, I think it's such a privilege uh, as a believer to know it, to have it, to be able to read it, study it, think it, hear it preached, um, that we're a part of this, this growing organism called the church, that is, it is not static, it is vital. And Lord, we thank you, Lord, that we, can, we have a, measure, we, a measuring stick that we can measure everything else that people teach. And it's called the Apostles' Teaching. And we know the apostles stand on the shoulders of the Old Testament prophets and the New Testament prophets working together with them to give us the word of God that's in our hands today. And so we thank you, Lord, you are the cornerstone and that everything is, that is built upon this sure, steady, firm foundation is now being built exactly and precisely the way you desire it because you are, you are the measuring rod and stick for all the rest of the building. Thank you, Lord, that we're living stones and being part of it, that we came into this building because we believed in Christ and him alone. And I pray, Lord, as we now grow uh, in Christ-likeness, that we would grow to maturity so, Lord, we would know what the truth is and that we wouldn't be tossed to and fro by every teaching that's out there.
and I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So let's get our blue sheets out from our bulletin. Stand together.